Hi, it's Eric again. If it feels like I'm always asking you for money, it's because I'm always asking you for money. That's because producing a high-quality podcast like Making Gay History costs a lot. Between ten dollars and $20,000 for each episode, for the audio and all the extra resources and archival photos you'll find on our website. One way to help us keep bringing LGBTQ history to life through the voices of the people who lived it is to join our Patreon community, $5 a month or $60 a year. And for that, you get a front row seat to my interviews with present-day history makers, behind-the-scenes production conversations, and delicious clips from my archive that we couldn't include in regular episodes. Right now, we have 200 Patreon followers. That's just a fraction of our many thousands of listeners. Can you help us double that by the 55th anniversary of Stonewall this coming Pride Month? We can't do what we do without all our supporters. And if you aren't one already, I hope you will be soon. Or, if you are already, get one of your friends to sign up to join our Patreon community at patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. That's patreon.com slash makinggayhistory. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com and hit the Patreon subscription button on our homepage. Thanks so much. Now, on to the episode you've chosen to hear. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. Billy Talmadge was an educator. Over the course of her life, she was an elementary school teacher, accumulated two PhDs in education, and won awards for her work with blind and deaf children. But for most of her working life, who she was threatened what she did. Billy brought her passion for education to her activism when she joined the first lesbian rights organization in the U.S., the Daughters of Belitis, in the mid-1950s. Billy did everything from counseling women who had been thrown out of the military to holding Gab and Javas in her own living room. That was the 1950s version of a consciousness-raising group. DOB offered Billy the chance to provide a new generation of women with the answers she herself had so desperately sought as a young woman coming of age in the 1940s. But if anyone had found out about Billy's work with the daughters, she could have been fired from her job. When I interviewed her in 1989, she asked me to intentionally misspell her name for my book to conceal her identity. She was still worried about losing her job if her colleagues found out she was a lesbian. Here's the scene. Billy Talmadge is in her early 60s and lives with her partner, Marsha Herndon, and their three cats, two enormous calicos and one tiny kitten, in a small house in what was a rough neighborhood across the bay from San Francisco. Billy is sitting at her dining room table. She's heavy set with short reddish blonde hair. She laughs easily and speaks with the excitement of a pioneer recalling the early days of her life in the movement. Billy lights a cigarette before explaining how she came to be a crusader for lesbian rights. But first, she had to come to an understanding of her own identity. Kelly, Kelly, Kelly. If you give me if you give me that string over there, I can um, play with it and I'm gonna see if she'll sit in my lap. I don't think she will. She's interested in. Interview with Billy Talmadge, Sunday, August sixth, nineteen eighty nine, at the home of Billy Talmadge and Marsha Herndon in Richmond, California. That's the San Francisco Bay Area. Interviewer is Eric Marcus. Tape one. Side one. I was always a tomboy, mm-hmm. and I had had crushes, you know, and um, 
and I had tried things with boys, and they just simply were not my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was uncomfortable. And um, I decided if this is, you know, what it's going to be, I'm going to know what, what one's supposed to do in this sort of business. So I had heard that there was this big dike on campus. Where was this? Which school? This was in, in Kansas. Mm -hmm. And um, so I followed her for days. And so finally I saw her coming out of the cafe just off campus there going to her car. And I went up to her and I said, well, I want to talk to you. And, you know, and I'm sure I came on just that strong. And she sort of looked at me. And she said, well, okay, get in the car. So we got in and she started driving. And she said, what is it? And I said, well, I've just found out that I'm a homosexual and I want to know what this is all about. I said, I want to know how to make love to a woman. I never have and I think I better know. And she looked at me and she kind of chuckled and she said, well, there's only one way to really show you. And I said, no, don't show me, tell me, you know. And so we drove out somewhere and uh, we parked in the park. And I asked her every question I could think of. And she would answer to the best of her ability anything that I put to her. And uh, I, I think maybe somewhere along in there, when I look back on that particular scene, I think I knew then that, that there had to be questions like this that everybody was asking and that somewhere, somehow, there should be people who would answer as honestly as they could. And at that time, this was 1950, 51? Oh, no, this was, um, this was 47, 48. So there wasn't, uh, there was well, no one to call. Uh -uh. And it was probably dangerous to be known, I assume. Absolutely, you could be thrown out of the campus and nothing flat. Let's go back to, um, when you first came in contact with D.O.B., mm -hmm. how did you hear about D.O.B.? Um, I was with J. Bell. I know her as Shorty. <laughs> right. Well, we'll call her Shorty from here. Um, she and I had moved down from uh, Tacoma, Seattle area. And you were a couple by then? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We came down into the Bay Area. In fact, we were in Berkeley. And uh, somebody we had met had been invited to this uh, gathering at Dell and Phil's, this uh, buffet dinner or picnic type thing. And they ended up not going and Shorty and I did. But that was my first contact and because I was, both Shorty and I were so very impressed with Dell and Phil and what they were trying to do. And I, it was another thing of like a, a real interrogation. I mean they were sitting there in the kitchen and we were just firing questions like crazy. And, um, but we both became very interested in it. and. Um, just moved right in to what interested you in, in that the education primarily and um, uh, the fact that there was the possibility of really really helping people weren't you concerned at that point about your job no <laughs> um, I, I look back yes. on it you know and I don't honestly know that I would have the guts now I was a public school teacher at the time. This is in the 1950s? In the, yeah. Where were you teaching? In Berkeley Public Schools. Uh -huh. And um, at that point of time, there, were, there was a list of about 21 things that you could lose your teaching certificate for. The first one was to be a card-carrying communist, and the second one was to be suspected homosexual. 
suspected. They didn't have to prove anything. And for you, for any professional woman, for any teacher, a bar was out of the question, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yes. At that point of time, to go to a bar was just sticking your neck in a noose. But they were house parties. Uh -huh. This was one of the main reasons that the daughters existed. Was, number one, in San Francisco, at that point of time, was to keep our kids out of the bars because they were being raided and raided and raided and raided. And um, when we branched out a little bit, we had this chapter in Chicago, and two of our women were picked up and arrested on the streets for wearing fly-front jeans, and they were arrested for impersonating males. And that's all that they had was fly-front jeans. But they were arrested, picked up and arrested as, as impersonating a man. What could you do from, from... Well, help them to know their rights. Uh -huh. Number one, in most states, you had to have more than one apparel to be impersonation. And two, unless they were soliciting or anything, or doing something other than that, other than the fly front chains, um, you know, to call a good lawyer, plead not guilty, and demand a jury trial. Mm -hmm. You know, they had no women police on the forces. And women, when they were stopped or picked up or whatever, were, I'm, I'm, I know of one person, particularly in fact, one of our DOB people, was beaten to a bloody pulp. By the police? By the police. She was drinking and she was drunk, but she was beaten because she was a goddamn dyke, and that was quoted again and again by the guy who was beating her with, you know. You sound very protective of your, of, uh, of DOB members when you said you keep the kids out of the bars. That's I got a sense of, of uh, you had great concern. Well, we had a lot of kids, too, see. You had to be 21 to be in DOB. But we had a lot of 17-year-olds. And they would come and they would call and they would try to, you know, and, we'd, and we couldn't touch them legally. Because that was one way that they could get us. And they meaning? They meaning the law. Because this then was still um, contributing to the delinquency of a minor. And that was seven years state pen. What could you do for the kids then? For the, for the young ones? We had house parties. They were not, they were not DOB things and we, they did not drink. We would not let them drink. They had soda pop, they had Cokes, they really? had... Uh, well see, my, my first and foremost punch was education. Mm -hmm. And uh, in any way whatsoever that we could achieve this, and first and foremost of our girls, we had um, we had one Gavin Java session, for instance, on, on uh, and I can't remember what it was, but how to make a butch into a dolly, or you know, I mean, something weird, but how to show, how to accommodate to a situation. So accommodate in that regard. Um, if the if the situation arose, for instance, in our first our very first national convention that DOB had. We had it right here in San Francisco. And we had one woman who called us from Los Angeles area. She had been a subscriber and a member of DOB for several years. We'd never met her. We'd had a lot of you know, correspondence from her. She had never been in a skirt in 17 years. She said, do we have to wear skirts? And we said, yes, you have to wear a skirt. And so she went out and she bought one skirt she had several different men's shirts to go with it. I didn't care about the shirts. Nobody else did. But she had to wear a skirt. Why? 
honey, the law was still on the books that you could be arrested as a male for fly front jeans. That's a good reason to. And that was her the only skirt. reason. And and if we had uh, and we had quite a number of people at our first convention, and if we had you know and we had police there too, and Doesn't they scanned every one of us. And I'm sure that Dell and Phil and I and a number of others were on the books to be watched. By the police. Hmm. So uh, this was a survival tactic. Absolutely. To wear women's clothes. Absolutely. And this was rough too because we wanted to bring our people together and we wanted to, to have a convention. But we wanted to protect our people too. We didn't want to put them in jeopardy. And everything we did placed them in jeopardy. And they knew that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> They did know that. For, uh, uh, no chewing. Oh, 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 sorry about that. I'll scratch the head. Oh, uh, okay. No I give, I'll give you an example. I, was, I had a threat of blackmail. And, um, Necky, Necky. Shorty and I had moved down from Seattle, and there was a very, very dear friend of mine still up there in the Tacoma area. And I was working and had, uh, at this point in time, I was working for um, a drugstore chain. And was still, I had to get my um, uh, credential cleared. I had a couple of classes that I had to take to be certified in California. This was 1953. Yeah. Then. Anyway, um, Shorty and I had met this woman here in the Bay Area, whom we liked very much, and I thought, this was the perfect match for my friend in Tacoma. And so I started a communication between them and I matched and I was good because they just celebrated their 30th anniversary. That's a hell of a match. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> and, um, but I had written this letter to Bonnie. In Tacoma. And, in Tacoma. And uh, I, you know, I didn't hear from her. What had happened was Bonnie had gotten the letter had read it uh, just hurriedly and had gone on to work and apparently as she went out the door she dropped the letter and the postman picked it up. And the postman then, because of my letter which I had written on my company stationery, knew my name, my address and where I worked. And he knew from the letter that you were... From the letter obviously it was that Bonnie was too, was gay. And uh, he proceeded to blackmail her on the basis of if she didn't provide him what he wanted, then he would see to it that I was blown all over the map. And I called her and uh, I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what. She said, I can't talk about it. I can't talk about it on the phone. And I said, I'm coming up there. And so I flew up there and um, found out what it was. And I said, you know, why in the hell didn't you go to the police? Why didn't you go to the post office? Why didn't you do something? She could not, felt she couldn't, because, and she said, I want to I work with this. I, it, you know, it, I think will be all right. She says, I think I can persuade him and talk to him. And I was livid. I flew back the next day, I had to. But I was so angry. <laughs> I wasn't frightened. I was too angry to be frightened. Mm -hmm. So come Monday morning, I looked up FBI in the phone book. 
I don't know anything else. You know, FBI was what came to my mind. I took my lunch hour and I stomped down to the FBI. There was no one home. <laughs> the door was, and the door happened to be, I mean, the office happened to be the upstairs in the post office in Oakland. So I stormed down to the postmaster general in Oakland and I said, I want to talk to somebody about blackmail. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, I want to talk to somebody about a postal carrier who's trying to blackmail me. And he said, my God in my <laughs> jurisdiction. And I said, no, it, the guy happens to be in Tacoma. And uh, he said, just a minute. So he waltzed me over to the postal inspector. And this was an education in itself because the postal inspector went all the way around the barn to say, you know, what was in this letter. And he said, okay, let me ask you this. He said, does the word homosexuality enter the letter? And I said, yes, it's there. But I said, it's nothing that's wrong. And he said, let me ask you this. Could my 16-year-old daughter read this letter? Would I allow her to? And I said, yes. And I said, it would probably educate her, but it would not harm her. And he said, well, the difficulty is, is at this point of time, nobody had ever, did, you know, come up with any definition of what was pornography. And using the postal department in this regard was, you know, tricky. He said, now, again, is there anything in this letter that could not be read in court? And I said, yes, it could be read in court, and I wouldn't be afraid for it to. I would be embarrassed, perhaps, but I would not be afraid. And he said, okay, you let me handle this. The postal uh, inspector in this, in Oakland area, contacted the postal inspector in the Tacoma area, and they landed the guy right smack on his ass. And and so what happened was he was, the man was confronted with it, he confessed, and he got three years. In jail? He certainly did. Because the letter belongs to the writer until it's dropped in the post office box. Then it belongs to the government. Once it is delivered, it is the sole property of the addressee. And anybody tampering with it tampers with the federal government. And anybody trying to use such an item in a blackmail situation it, that has gone through the post office, then they're the ones who have committed the crime, not anybody else. And it becomes a federal crime. That's right. And he spent three years in prison. Ever hear from him again? Mm. What, a, what an experience. Boy, were you gutsy. I was angry, okay? And this was, a, this was the driving force, I think, of, a, of the very beginning of us in DOB. We were angry with what of the injustices that we saw. And our anger on those issues made us totally forget any fear. Mm -hmm. This is the only thing that, that drove us, I know. Um, thank you for your afternoon um, and for the company of your cats. Maybe I wasn't being completely honest when I thanked Billy Talmadge for the company of her cats. Their new kitten was a cutie, and I could understand why Billy and Marsha had taken it in after neighborhood kids had beaten it. But the big calicos took more than a few swipes at me and seemed to think that the foam covers on the lapel mics were cat treats. The blackmail story that Billy shared with me wasn't the first I'd heard. Extortion under the threat of exposure was a persistent fear, going way back. 
You heard in our recent episode about Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld how blackmail overshadowed gay life in Berlin and helped inspire him to found the first gay rights organization in the world back in 1897. That fear of blackmail was something the early organizations in the U.S. had to protect their members against. It was one of the reasons so many people in the early movement here used pseudonyms. Billy mentioned the police scanning the first Daughters of Belitis Convention in 1960. The authorities had organizations like DOB and the Manishing Society under surveillance. At one point, the San Francisco police broke into and searched the Daughters' headquarters, and the FBI infiltrated DOB meetings. An FBI report from 1959 states that, quote, the purpose of the DOB is to educate the public to accept the lesbian homosexual into society. That sounds about right. After we decided to feature my 1989 interview with Billy in this season of Making Gay History, we worked on finding out what had happened to her in the years since. We came across an email address for her primary caregiver, Suzanne Deakins, and wrote to her. The next day, October 24th, 2018, Suzanne responded to us. Her email said, Billy Talmadge passed this morning at 7.25 a.m. Pacific time. It was a peaceful passing. Billy was a few weeks shy of her 89th birthday. Suzanne, who was also Billy's dear friend of five decades and her one-time partner, told us that when Billy's health began declining, she moved Billy to Portland, Oregon, where Suzanne lives and where Billy spent the last five years of her life. A small community of friends fundraised for her and kept an eye on her. When I spoke with Suzanne, she said Billy had taken special pride in the fact that gay people could live so much more openly than when she was young. Her hard work had paid off. But, as we all know, there's still plenty to do. Making Gay History is a team effort. Thank you to executive producer Sour Birmingham and the rest of the Making Gay History crew. Producer Josh Gwynn, production coordinator Inga Dataya, social media producer Daniel Lorenko, photo editor Michael Green, and our guardian angel, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. A special thank you to Billy Talmadge's friend, Suzanne Deakins, for sharing her memories and photos of Billy. The Making Gay History podcast is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and One Archives at the USC Libraries. Season four of this podcast has been made possible with funding from the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Calamus Foundation, and our listeners, including a generous gift from Andra and Irwin Press. There's a new way you can support Making Gay History. Click on the merchandise tab on our website and you'll find Making Gay History t-shirts, tank tops, and hoodies. We've also got Making Gay History tote bags and mugs. So you can wear us, carry us, drink with us, and at the end of the day, lay your head on a pillow that says, I am Making Gay History. If you like what you've heard, tell your friends or give us a shout out on social media. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. And to find out what we're cooking up next, Subscribe to our newsletter. It's easy. You can find the link for that and all our previous episodes, as well as our archival photos, full transcripts, and additional information on Billy Talmadge, Marsha Herndon, and each of the people we feature at makinggayhistory.com. So long, until next time. <laughs>